Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Crosweller to the Menzies Leadership Forum. Mark, most recently, was the first Assistant Secretary of Australia's National Resilience Task Force, established by the federal government in May 2018. You've recently established an organisation called Ethical Intelligence. Tell me a little bit about what motivated you to do this and the purpose of it. Why are you focusing on this as the next chapter in your life, Mark? Certainly. So I think um, what, what I came to observe in leadership and, and again, it's through lived experience and all the personal uh, journeys that come with lived experience was that I thought or came to realise that I think leadership was lacking fundamentally two things about its ethos and that was uh, competence and confidence. Um, the leaders were act, acting less confidently about their ethics and with less competence about their ethics. And what diversity really taught me in spades, and some, some of the experiences were very private and personal, and some were quite public and overt, was that adversity and crisis breaks everything. It breaks systems, rules, procedures, equipment, uh, expectations, understanding, and kind of leaves you high and dry and then says to you, now what are you going to do? So all those support systems that help you make decisions or guide you through your life or protect you are gone. What are you left with? You're left with your ethics. You are left with having to navigate what is good, right or just in this situation. So when the law no longer works, when the procedures and the organisational systems no longer work, um, when your life experience is no longer adequate to help you navigate through the complexity, what are you going to do? It's an ethical question and leaders find themselves in that space all the time and it's the greatest test of leadership when the support systems and the mechanisms that you lean upon or rely upon or default to don't work, you're forced to act through your ethics. So Mark, you suggest that there are two ethical premises that are fundamental to managing that situation. Can you briefly touch on those? So if you're in public life or you contribute to community or you participate in the market, um, then the greatest ethic, the greatest measure of success of your uh, ethical proposition is to be trusted, is to uphold trust and confidence. In the, in the world of government and public institutions, that's the upholding of public trust and confidence. Uh, that is fundamental and foundational to the social contract between the citizen and the government. And again, it was established in our philosophies in the mid-1600s. The notion of social contracts, the rise of the nation state, the flourishing of institutions was about, uh, on some level, uh, through many aspects, keeping people safe, that, uh, alleviating our existential anxieties about fear of dying or fear of being hurt, that the institutional frames were there to help us help make it safer. That's never gone away. That's the social contract of the nation state of Western governments and why we trade our liberties and freedoms, or some of them at least, for safety, because we have to trust our institutions. So if you operate in public life, and it doesn't matter whereabouts in the system you operate, it's really important to understand that people are relying upon you or want to trust what you are doing, what you are saying and what you are thinking, that you have their best interests at heart to the extent to which you are able. And and we're seeing this play out in COVID-19 now and we saw it play out in the bushfires this summer and it doesn't matter what adversity rises up, that proposition gets tested. The second one is um, the greatest mission 
um, in public life is to uh, reduce as much as possible human suffering. In other words, to be compassionate. And a leader cannot escape either, and there's other ethics as well, of course, but those two things are fundamental. <laughs> that that if you can't be trusted or you cannot sufficiently or adequately see the suffering of another human being and know what to do about it, you will fail as a leader. The two things that people need you to do, they, they need to be able to trust you and they need to be able to know that you care and that you can do or will do whatever you can that's reasonable or maybe even unreasonable um, to help them with their dilemma, to help them with their adversity, to help them with their sense of insecurity or anxiety. And if you're not doing that as a leader, then then what are you doing? It's interesting, Mark, though. I mean, it's a very salient point that you make, but you also claim that your observation is often those things are absent in leadership. They're absent because we have a society that uh, very much denigrates uh, the ethical virtues of character. Um, so we have a, um, a political uh, environment that weaponizes virtue. So they call it um, virtue signaling. So um, uh, the way that works essentially is that a person will make the presumption that they're already compassionate. So, so the individual who's about to make the, the claim is already compassionate in their own minds and then they judge somebody else for not being so. And so they throw the virtue at someone and say, you need to be more compassionate or you fail to show compassion. Um, it's really unhelpful when people do that because then what happens is compassion gets sacrificed because people because people are being it's being used as a weapon, it's being used as a spear or a bullet, it's being thrown at people, people have to duck it or weave it. And so what happens in society is we just don't talk about it because it's it's be, because it's used as a moral judgment or used as, as I said, a political weapon. So so I reframe that and say to people, look, there's never a circumstance in your leadership where compassion, for example, is not appropriate. The only problem or the only gap is that we fail to understand its applicability. So we don't understand the ethic, you know, in a more sophisticated way. So we have a superficial understanding of human suffering and what it means to alleviate it. And when it and when we f- it, we fail to be competent in how we exercise that, we tend to move the ethic to the side, or we don't consider it at all. So the ethics of compassion, trust, humility, forgiveness, care, kindness, consideration, all of the great virtues which have served us so well in the course of human history, are just as applicable today as they've ever been. But unfortunately we don't value them like we used to. And so the ethics sit there waiting to be used, waiting to be accessed, waiting to be rediscovered. And we have a market-based society that says, don't worry about it, just look after yourself. Just pursue self-interest and you'll be fine. Put yourself before other people and it won't matter. Um, now, it sounds harsh, but if you if you sit back and just listen to the narratives in society through advertising or politics or, or the news uh, and, and general media, you'll just hear all of this narrative about individualism. And from time to time, you'll hear aspects of consideration of other people. But So I think we've got to return to what it means to be considerate, what it means to be kind, what it means to be trusted, what it means to be compassionate. And Liz, every time we talk about this in public forums or private forums, without doubt, and and um, people say, can we please keep talking about this? Have you got examples of leaders who you've seen manifest those qualities? Yeah, so a very contempt. So Nelson Mandela was one, but I'll come back to uh, Mandela. But Jacinta Ardern. So Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand, the Prime Minister, has a predicates her ethics uh, or her government on the ethics of kindness, um, well-being um, and empathy or compassion. And she's serious about those things. Um, Now, does she do them perfectly? No. Nobody's going to do them perfectly. 
they are themselves perfections for which we are imperfect and and fallible. Um, But that's not to say we ought not strive to achieve them, which is what lived experience is about. You know, your whole life is is moving towards getting better at these sort of things. But she brings them into her narrative. She brings them into her policy formulation. Um, As an Australian, I I go to New Zealand, uh, well, I was until COVID-19, of course, going to New Zealand, a reasonable, probably two or three times a year for work. Um, That ethic is infectious. So it's infectious in the people. So when you come across, as soon as you enter a New Zealand airport, they're kind people. They're they're interested in you. Um, you know, they live. They're a society of relatively high standards of well-being. They've incorporated their indigenous cultures far more comprehensively than we have in Australia, and that's had an enormous benefit to their culture and the way they see the world. Um, so she's tapped into the sentiments of her society, but that's also what she believes in. And I find her impressive. I found her impressive in the navigation through the Christchurch incident, uh, through the White Island incident, the volcano that erupted and killed a number of Australians and other people, uh, how she's dealing with COVID-19, how she's tackling many of the social problems in New Zealand. There are are imperfections in her strategy, there are imperfections in her narrative, but you cannot question her intention or her motivation or her wish. That's what makes her impressive. So she won't execute them perfectly, that's fine, but she's not giving up. She continues to work on them and use them to motivate and to guide the way she runs her government. Um, People all over the world speak about how impressive that is. If you speak to people in New Zealand, they'll say it's not quite that simple, it's more complex, and the government hasn't met a number of expectations that uh, communities wanted them to meet. I just think that's reality. I think that's a reality of being in modern-day politics. But I still don't think it in any way takes away from Prime Minister Adern is trying to do in that country with an ethical basis. Which which leads me uh, to something I'm really, um, in, I really want to ask you about because it's the perfect segue to it. You know, the Foundation's research around leadership shows there's an absolute crisis in trust and confidence in political leadership. Mm. Your point, these very qualities that Jacinta Ardern encompasses in the way that she approaches her role. In Australia, every time we do any research, there's a huge cynicism about political leadership. And there's tensions in that, aren't there, Mark, between this notion of um, delivery versus the sorts of um, ethics that you say might change the narrative around um, or that uh, how people might, how the community might resolve to move forward. What are your observations about political leadership in Australia and how do you explain why there is such a crisis in terms of people's confidence in the current leadership models? So, so that's, a, there's, that's a complex question and probably an even more complex answer, but I, let me try and answer it this way. I think, uh, I think we've grown not to value our politics um, in Australia. I think there are many reasons for that, not the least of which is probably the, the rapid changing of the leadership over the last 10 years has not been helpful. And I think any political commentator and any reasonable politician would say the same thing. So those that sort of grab for power or or um, changing of the guard uh, frequently and for reasons that the electorate didn't necessarily, or in fact, I don't think agreed with at all, have not been helpful. So, so straight away, I think that kind of sets the scene for a lack of trust. But on the other side, I think we're a country that has never really had its politics tested under great adversity. So we've, we haven't experienced uh, warfare, civil warfare, or, or warfare more broadly as, you know, in terms of, say, World War One or World War Two apart from, um, uh, you know, uh, short breaches uh, in World War II from the Japanese, of course. But but really, we've been a lucky country in many 
a sense of the word and haven't had to have our politics tested to the extent of which they say which say they have had tested in Europe or elsewhere. And politics done well uh, does save a nation and does look after the interests of the people. So I genuinely believe our politicians are trying to do that. I really do believe that. I don't think that I don't take a cynical view of our politics in Australia, but but I do take the view that they're invulnerable, that they won't show a vulnerability um, for fear of loss of power and control and place in the world, and also fear of us, that we will judge them harshly if they are vulnerable. And so I think what sits in the middle of all of it is a fear of being vulnerable. Now, um, someone like Prime Minister Ardern is prepared to take that risk, and I think we need a leadership that's prepared to take the risk. And if it's done with great sincerity and integrity, um, I think it pays great dividends. Now, now you still have to move to confidence, so you can't you can't just be vulnerable uh, and display your ignorance and then not have an answer to the problem. So I don't think that helps. But but being vulnerable is about being related. It's the basis of relationship between two human beings that you have to let someone into your life to understand who you are. Um, you know, what you will and won't accept, um, what hurts you, you know, what inspires you, all of those things are important. If we don't get back to a politics which is prepared to enter that space, then there will continue to be a growing divide between the political elite and the citizen of this country, and I, I just don't think that's going to work. It's not working now. But then it's interesting, the nature of politics, though, is a sort of essentially adversarial, isn't it, in the sense that people are oppositions and others are looking for those vulnerabilities to exploit yeah. the situation. You know, as someone who's worked across all levels of government, I mean, that is an inherent tension in the political discourse, isn't it? How do you, how have you seen or what's your observation in terms of, as I said, working at every level of government and across a number of governments about ways that we might move uh, towards this, a better sort of um, contract between politicians and the people is really what you're suggesting, whilst also really understanding, as I said, the sort of adversarial nature of the system which mitigates or um, doesn't really allow much opportunity for that. Yeah, that's right. So so our politics is adversarial and it's, it's you know it's, it's essentially designed to be contestable and hold um, a, a, the opposition is meant to hold the government to account and that's um, uh, a good government relies on a good opposition so if an opposition is effective in holding it to account the government will perform better um, where it goes wrong is when it gets personal when people attack the characters of each other and so I don't think there's anything wrong with contestability or an adversarial policy discussion about what's what's best for people. But the problem is we rarely have policy debates anymore and we have personal attacks. And, um, and I think we have personal attacks because we've fallen into the world of popularism where we want to be popular at all costs. And, of course, being popular means having your character tested. And if, you, if you've got a, a perceived character flaw, then it'll be attacked and you'll be shown as being weak or on some level um, uh, insufficient or ineffective or whatever word you want to use. <laughs> And people fear that more than anything. And so what do they do? They, they become invulnerable. They become defensive. They become insensitive to the needs of others because they can't possibly show a vulnerability. Now, we all participate in that. It's not just a Labor versus Liberal politician, that the electorate also participates in that in that denigration or that, that um, attack on character. So I, I interviewed a number of uh, very senior politicians in my PhD uh, at federal level, international level, actually, in the US as well. And um, they, they sort of said this, they said, look, they came, not all of them, but some of them said they came to realise that part of their job in society was to be the butt of people's anger, that politics was a place where we put our anger. When we weren't happy with something, we'd blame politics, we'd blame the government. Now, they're not, the governments weren't faultless in terms of the policies that they introduced or were operating through, which caused some people great grief and some people great joy. So there's some basis for being 
um, critical of the government if the policy doesn't work, but it tended to be a place where we just put all of our anger. And one minister particularly after 21 years serving as a minister of a government in Australia said, I, 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 he resigned, he said, because he just couldn't do it anymore. He said the pressure was just enormous, that people indiscriminately blamed him for pretty much everything, really, because, you know, if they couldn't deal with it themselves, it must be the government's fault. So so it's a really complex question, Liz, but how do we all reframe this to be more courteous, respectful, kind, uh, considerate and compassionate towards each other, predicated upon fundamentally this, that neither you nor I want to be harmed, to experience harm or to cause harm. What if our politics was predicated upon that? So we ended everything on the basis that let's do whatever we can as much as possible to minimise the harm and suffering of ourselves and each other. What does that look like? Now, it's a really complex answer, but it's a bloody good place to start. Well, I think it's really interesting in terms of that, this, you talk about this inner ethical compass, which, which should underpin our purpose and meaning. And that, in some ways, the last challenge that you just suggested really requires us to deeply understand our inner ethical compass. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Certainly. So um, ethics is a big part of our identity, very, very big part of our identity. So if I was to say to you, if you had uh, unlimited choice in your life with no consequence and you could do whatever you wanted and there was no morality whatsoever, two things would happen. You wouldn't be able to move because there'd be too much choice. But more importantly, you wouldn't know who you were because we're defined by our boundaries. We're actually defined, a very big part of our identity is defined by what we will and won't accept in life as being good, right or just. So good, right and just is very important to how we identify ourselves. And when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of who we are. When we lose sight of that, inevitably harms turn up. We end up harming ourselves. So we breach our own ethical codes and we breach our own morality or our own ethics. And there's a there's a, a consequence to that. And the consequence ends up being unpleasant. And if we really look at it, except in the rarest of circumstances, there are some things that happen in life where, you know, there is no contribution to causation whatsoever. And, and there are examples of that in society. But, but generally speaking on a day-to-day basis, if our words are unskillful or our, our actions are unskillful, then something comes back which is somewhat unpleasant. So if we understand our moral compass better or our ethical premise better, we understand who we are and what we stand for or the ground upon which we stand. And let's just say, for example, we stand for being a more compassionate human being. We would change the way we saw the world. If we, if we took a stand for being more trusted or to care more or to be kinder, it would change who we were. But because we don't invest in those things, we lose our identity. So we, we lose a sense of who we are. So this very thing about pursuing self or pursuing self-identity, which is you know, participation in the marketplace, is fine to a point. But really, we derive our greatest happiness and sense of self by understanding what's good, right and just for ourselves and for other people. And what you're suggesting, Mark, is wherever you find yourself in the society, in you know positions of you know more manifest leadership, if you're a politician, whether you're in a community, in whatever manifestation your life is, your point is that all of us have a responsibility to interrogate that more deeply uh, because it's in the relationships we have between each other that the answer to um, working or living in a world which meets people's needs and which is better prepared to address, you know, specifically in terms of your um, experience, some of really challenges when everything falls apart. But that's one of the key pillars of actually helping the community move through those sorts of experiences. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I am. What I'm saying is that life, life is 
one very big lived experience. And on balance, you want that experience to be more joyful, happy and peaceful than not. And if we don't understand what drives that, what fundamentally underpins that better experience, then we probably will live a, sub, live a suboptimal life. Um, Aristotle spoke to this, the Buddha spoke to this, that that every, every, every uh, no word, thought or action was ever wasted in your life. It creates your world. What you say, what you think, what you do creates your reality. Um, if we clean those things up a bit through better understanding our ethics and what was important to us, we would live a better life. But we tend to throw them out the window. We tend not to understand them enough. We tend not to value them. So if you're going to if you're going to lead people, then everything that you think, say, and do matters. You can't say it doesn't matter. It does. Your words have power. Your words are shaped by the things that you think about. The things that you do are shaped by the things that you think about and the things that you say. So they all matter. My, my question to leaders is, what are you premising those things on? What, what's the ground upon which you stand? Is it to stand for, are you taking a stand for being trusted? Are you taking a stand for being compassionate or caring or kind or considerate? Or are you taking a stand for something else? Um, um, being ambitious, being ruthless, uh, being cruel. Like the mind doesn't operate in a vacuum. If you're not operating through some level of virtuosity, then you must be operating either through neutrality or non-virtuosity. It can't but, be any other way. But I, but I think, Mark, that I think that's absolutely right. But I think what's interesting is I don't think people necessarily have know how to navigate that internal conversation in themselves. What might be ambition or what might, you know, the sorts of things that you mentioned, what's the process that you think people might go through in order to more clearly understand what motivates them and the ethical premises that dictate how they live, do you think? Certainly. So the West at the moment, and it's borrowed heavily from Buddhist philosophy, is very big on mindfulness and well-being, and they're good things. So to be mindful is a good thing. So the West, the West interprets mindfulness as being very present in the moment, understanding how you feel about whatever's arising in that moment and letting go of anything that's adverse or unpleasant. That's good. That's a good thing. It's a good start. But it doesn't complete the process. Mindfulness also says, am I off virtue? Have I moved off being kind or patient or compassionate or considerate or wise or caring? And if you have, mindfulness rightfully would say, well, Let's get you back to that. Let's get you back to that because we know, and this is what ha- this is what happens in bushfires, floods, storms, cyclones, COVID nineteen. When people stretch themselves and go and help someone else, they feel better. Full stop. End of argument. They just do. When you help somebody else, when you consider the plight of somebody else, and you do something about it, you feel better. It's why volunteerism is so strong in Australia. It's why we do our best work in adversity. And my argument has been for years, why is it we can do it in adversity, but we can't do it in day-to-day life? Nothing changes, but life just gets amplified. That's all. So the sufferings of life are always there. Natural hazards just amplify them. That's all. They just amplify them. They They don't cause them. They amplify them. So if you have a leader that's more finely attuned to the plight of another person and with the power powers of wealth and resources and equity that they hold as a leader use those things to help other people to achieve uh, to be successful to be more comfortable to be to suffer less and that's what a leader should be doing but if a leader is stepping over people and subordinating and pushing past in order to get somewhere that's not leadership as a good friend of mine said or, or, and, and she was someone I interviewed for my PhD she said that's not leading she said that's just 
being in charge. So she said, are you being in charge or are you leading? If you're being in charge, then you're just holding positional power over someone else, telling them what to do, subordinating them, probably causing them a whole lot of grief and treading on them in order to get where you want to go. Or are you leading, which is about bringing them in, understanding their plight, uh, leveraging and trying to help them express the best of who they can be in order to contribute to the bigger picture. And that will necessarily be constraints in that space and, you know, all sorts of other things that go on in leadership around, um, you know, needing to motivate and inspire and help people get where they need to go. But it doesn't include bullying, harassment, intimidation, subordination, and all those other things that also go on in the leadership framing. None of those things are ethical. For any, there's no good reason to be that way ever. And if you have, if a leader has to default to those tactics, that's not leading. It just isn't. It's it's nothing more than being in charge. So, um, so all of us in any in any aspect of our lives can take on board what you're saying, Mark. I mean, what you're it's not just. I mean, so often leadership is a conversation about those who lead, but all of us yeah, can right. go on that internal journey in terms of defining who we are and how we live in in whatever context leadership takes place, whether you're a mother, whether you're uh, a school teacher, whether um, whether you run something or you don't run something, what you're saying is that this internal journey and this careful consideration of the things that you think are important, all of us can choose to take those steps. That's exactly what I'm saying. So the West has a, it continues to pursue the hero leader, you know, the, almost the Messiah, someone to lead us out of trouble, someone to get us out of this pickle. I'm arguing that that's everybody, that that's not, it's it's almost unreasonable to place that burden entirely upon another person. Yes, we're structured for that. Society's structured for that. That's a Western construct. Um, but it's overstated, it's overplayed and it's overused. So every aspect of your life lives is an opportunity to understand the virtuous nature of your ethical premise is to help you to understand the best of who you are is to improve the lived experience every every moment of every day is an opportunity to do that as you rightly say, as a as a parent, as a mother, you lead your children. Uh, you 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 lead your uh, relatives. You lead your friends. There's not a space or a place where you cannot operate ethically, where ethics isn't important. And it's not. And I think the other rule about this is it's really just about getting better, not about perfection. And that's why I started this whole uh, this whole my whole premise as ethical intelligence is to help people become more competent and confident in the things that they already hold in their mind. There's nothing I can give you that you don't already have. I'll, I'll finish with this example with Jacinda Ardern. So kindness, empathy, and well-being has, has attracted a lot of criticism. And, and so what we do with leaders who operate that way is that we sanctify. The sanctify means to make holy. So we project and externalise upon another those attributes for which they advocate. So she says, I advocate for kindness, empathy, and well-being. And she does, and that's what she's doing. But the only reason you know those things, Liz, is because you've had a cognition of them. You recognise recognize it comes back into your mind what it means to be kind or to operate through well-being or to be empathetic or compassionate in other words it's coming from you she's showing you what you're capable of but the fact that you recognize it means you can actually do it but we don't make the connection so what we say to the leader is i want you to do more of that because it makes me feel better what the leader's trying to say is i'll show you what you're capable of join me in the same journey what happens to the leader that, that we project upon is of course inevitably they 
don't do what we want them to do or they don't meet our expectations and then we demonise them. So they go from being sanctified to demonised. And that's what's happening to Ardern in, in her politics. She's been now demonised for not being kind enough or empathy's not working for her or wellbeing hasn't played out the way people expected it to. All she was really trying to say is join me on this journey. Join me on the journey of being kind focusing on well-being and being more empathetic. And everybody has a, has the opportunity to participate in that world. And that's where her leadership is. It's not about saying, uh, Prime Minister, what can you do for me? It's about saying, Prime Minister, may I join you in that journey? And Mandela said the same thing. Uh, Martin Luther King said the same thing. The great spiritual leaders of the courses of humanity in Muhammad, Buddha, Christ and others said similar things. I will show you what you are capable of doing. Uh, We just have to make the choice to commit. So in the sense that all of us have that responsibility, you know, the Menzies uh, Leadership Bushfire Initiative is really focusing on supporting communities to develop leadership and to be instrumental in advancing their own futures, I suppose. To your point, uh, we at the Foundation also see a gap between sort of individualistic and institutional responses to um, challenge and to crises. And we think that there's a really important role for community to be able to be supported to develop insights around leader capability in those communities and for those communities to make be um, supported to contribute to working with others to achieve what they want um, for the people in those communities. Um, I just wonder, you've seen that you've worked with a lot of communities, Mark, and you've made a very cogent case for the importance of individuals understanding their leadership capability and stepping into those spaces. What's your observation about how to support or build capability communities to encourage people to feel the confidence about their own leadership capability and to give them a platform to contribute? Yeah, so I think um, it's a really good question. I think uh, so. certainly that build the confidence and the confidence of people to step forward and I think it's about the institutional leaders being prepared to trade or renegotiate the equities of power, wealth and resource. The institutions hold those things in buckets. Um, so power, legislation, you know, all the things that give them power and authority to do things, resources, you know, physical things, buildings, whatever, um, uh, wealth, money. Those things are held largely by the institutional framings of society. Those things are what makes society better or worse, depending on how they're distributed. The big challenge, I think, for Australia and for probably the Western world more broadly in this space of great crisis and adversity, which seems to be getting worse, not better, is how can we rebalance those and our institutions prepared to start to free up some of their constraints or hold on those things to have them better distributed? And is the community prepared to step up in, in working with institutions to make that happen? So it's got all of it's got to be beyond self-interest. All of it has to be in the space of communitarian uh, consideration, uh, empathy, kindness, well-being. How can we redistribute those things for the greater good, for the greater number? And in the um, communities, Mark, that you've worked with helping them in that recovery phase and in building their resilience, what are some ways of doing that? Like how? what are the sorts of things that can we can do to build that opportunity? So I think, I think structurally it comes down to um, if you've got, a, for example, a, a well-functioning local government, that understands the needs of the people, that's highly connected into the social fabric of that local community or society. It's a not it's not a bad place to start. You've got you've got an existing governance, a democratic process in place. I have seen communities where in the absence of the democratic process, such as local government, the unofficial king and queen has turned up, very autocratic, totalitarian. 
and rules the roost. And so democracy is actually really important. So I think we need to reinvest and revalue democracy, but I think it needs to be much more participative than representative. So I think the distinction for me is that we have a representative democracy at the moment. How how do we improve or increase participation in that process, which requires individuals to step up, step in, move towards and, and take a greater role in society, bring their ethics with them and be prepared to partner with the formal institutions and how to make you know, the world a better place. That works brilliantly in disaster recovery where it happens, where you get a a, a collection of ideas, a collection of effort, um, a mutual understanding, a mutual respect, an admiration and a commitment to helping other people. It works well. You only need, unfortunately, one obstinate politician or community member who's trying to dominate or control to undermine that goodwill. And there are ways of dealing with that. The, 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 the broader group can deal with that if it needs to. And, you know, sometimes that can come across as being quite harsh, but it's probably necessary. So the participative aspects of society, um, bringing the equities of power, wealth and resource to the table and working through how they can be redistributed or used for the greater good. Um, if, if we got to understand civics better and how and how institutions actually work and what they're there for, what they're meant to do, and we invited people in more fully to participate in those things and we understood at a much deeper level notions of value in those communities, we would know where to put those equities. We would know straight away what was important to people. What do we need to replace or repair after damage? What do we need to protect before it gets damaged, hopefully? Um, so on and so forth. So, But that all requires narrative, dialogue, structure um, and ethics, underpinned by an ethics that says that I will bring the best of who I am as an ethical person to the table and that ethic really will be predicated fundamentally on two things. I want to be trusted and I care. I I care for other people. I I don't want to see somebody else suffer any more than they absolutely must or have to. What can I do to alleviate it? And that as a premise in life is a wonderful way to live. And it's innate. It's actually part of being human. It's not something you have to get from somewhere else. It's just something you have to liberate in yourself. Uh, So just, so Mark, just in finishing, a lot of what you've spoken about today, I think probably is also a deep reflection of your own leadership journey, the journey that you've gone on as a leader. Just in finishing, can you just um, give us a little insight into that leadership journey and to the sorts, um, you know, perhaps a challenge that you've faced, you know, and that you've, and how you've worked through that process as you've developed your own leadership capability? You ask you are big questions, Liz. Um, <laughs> look, look, absolutely. Look, I came to, I came to realise the, the benefit, the value of lived experience and that adversity, because I chose to look at it this way, that adversity was a great teacher because I made that choice in my mind. I make the distinction because... Um, perpetuating harm, so someone who perpetuates harm on the basis that it's good for someone is a false premise. So you can't say if someone's hurting someone else, you can't say that's a good thing, it's not, because it's adverse. But what I do say is that the person who's experiencing the harm can take it and say, I'm going to make the most of this. I'm going to take it as a, a lifelong lesson and see what I can, what, how I can use it, how I can make it better. So what does that mean in practical terms? My mid I saw a lot of adversity in my career. A lot of people suffer immensely from fires, floods, storms, cyclones, car accidents, house fires, all sorts of things. But I realised that I also had my own suffering in life. Um, divorce, 
post-traumatic stress, um, having to come to accept um, a diagnosis of incurable lymphoma, which I still live with, that that should have killed me when I was 45 and at 56 I'm still here, um, kind of reminds me that life's important, it's valuable, and that I get to choose how I live it. My, my professor said when I was first diagnosed, because there was no cure for what I've got, I went to him and said, what should I do? And he said, look, I can give you two letters. He said, I can give you a letter that tells you to retire from your job, go on a pension, move down to the coast and make the best of your days. He said, I can give you another letter that says, we're not quite sure what's going to happen really. Uh, Go out and do the thing that makes your heart sing. Follow your bliss and make the biggest contribution you can possibly make. I took the second letter. I decided to do that. So I still live with this condition and I have half an immune system essentially. So many days I don't feel well because my body's having to work really hard to deal with some things that other people take for granted. But I bounce out of bed pretty much it well it's not so hard to, not so easy to bounce out of bed at 55 but I get up every day with with a sense of purpose and a sense of intention to do whatever I can reasonably do to you know, make the world a better place but also to find more happiness as well so so it's a really short answer to a complex question but all of my lifelong philosophy or all the philosophies that I teach which is predominantly now Buddhist <laughs> comes from lived experience reinforced by the great bodies of knowledge so so if i reflected on my life and i do a lot and then i go into mythology uh, philosophy uh, the more esoteric aspects of theology or art or music or literature or poetry i can find explanations for my experience and what that tells me is that we're not alone that humanity has had these experiences before and they're meaningful they mean something they make life better and so that's my philosophy of life is to say look whatever comes my way i'll deal with it might be pretty damn ugly at the time i'll have to navigate that ugliness but over time i'll come to understand what it's trying to teach inevitably it's always trying to teach what it means to be compassionate because it's only by understanding suffering the nature of suffering of humanity that we get a chance to be compassionate if we don't understand suffering, compassion is not possible because compassion is the very, very strong will to remove it, prevent it, minimise it or hold space with the suffering of another person. And I'll, I'll finish on this, Liz, that it's very personal and I won't say it in too much detail, but I, my mother passed a few weeks ago and I helped her do that. And it was the greatest honour of my life. Uh, at, the, at the greatest moment of her suffering as she moved towards her passing, she gave me the opportunity to be the most compassionate I'd ever been towards her. And it was the most rewarding experience, sad experience, but rewarding experience of my life. My heart broke into a thousand pieces. There's no doubt about that. But but she gave me the opportunity to show her immense compassion. Um, and I really understood it. I really got what that experience was all about. So I would say to anybody, step in, step up and run towards. If you see someone in trouble that you love or you care about, and it could be a complete stranger that you've developed a, a momentary affinity with, then don't fear being compassionate. Step in, step up, run towards, do what you can. Sometimes that doing what you can is just a quiet word, a hand on a shoulder, a hug, or it could be much, much more than that. You could be a leader of a company of a billion-dollar profit or trading or turnover or whatever, and you can do a lot more, then do that. But whatever you can do that's reasonable and maybe even unreasonable, do what you can to help the suffering or the plight of another human being and you will live a good life. You will live a good life because it makes you happier. I just can't tell you how much, how grateful I am for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Um, you know, I very have great respect for the contribution that you've made, uh, not only in terms of the roles that you've played in our community, but also the deep insights and the 
very important thinking that you've done about how, as you say, responding in those moments of such uncertainty can show us a path for how we might lead more usually to create the community that we all want to be part of. So thank you very, very much for your time today. We're very grateful, um, as I said, and on behalf of the Menzies Foundation, we thank you very much. You're very welcome, Liz. You're very welcome.